0: Hello and welcome to the Israel-Palestine podcast. The subject of this episode is the Temple Mount, as it's known to Jews, or Noble Sanctuary, as it's known to Muslims, the holy site to which we can trace back so many key events of recent years. It was the stickiest obstacle for the Clinton-led peace talks of 2000 and the epicenter of the Al-Aqsa Intifada, which erupted Following Ariel Sharon's visit to the site in October that same year and was named after the Al-Aqsa Mosque, located on the mount. So, taking a critical look at the place this site occupies in Israeli and Palestinian national consciousness can help us to analyze the often tragic events for which it has been a catalyst. The most recent outbreak of violence is instructive. In September 2009 On the eve of Yom Kippur, rumors that a radical Jewish group planned to hold prayers on the mount led to serious clashes between Palestinian protesters and Israeli police. These clashes followed the same pattern as previous outbursts. Under rules currently administered by the State of Israel, only Muslim worship is permitted on the Temple Mount Plaza. Jewish prayer is confined to the Wailing Wall. And any suggestion that Jewish prayer will be moved to the mount itself acts like a red rag to a bull. Although the Temple Mount is home to the Holy of Holies, rabbinical Judaism forbids Jews from entering the site until the coming of the Messiah. I want to start by looking at how Israeli governments have drawn on this aspect of Jewish tradition to put in place a workable sharing arrangement, and then at how the viability of this arrangement has been called into question by the messianic currents in Israeli society. First, for those who are unfamiliar with the geography, the Holy Precinct comprises a raised plaza in the southeast corner of the Old City of Jerusalem, taking up about a sixth of the Old City's total area. There are two important mosques on the plaza, At the southern end is the relatively unostentatious Al-Aqsa Mosque. In the center is the much more impressive Dome of the Rock with its famous blue mosaics and golden dome. The area where Jews pray is outside the main site at the foot of its western wall. The Temple of Solomon is said to have been built around 1000 BC on Mount Moriah, a craggy hill just outside Jerusalem. In 586 BC, the Bible tells us, the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple and carried the Judeans away in captivity to the rivers of Babylon. Seventy years later, returning exiles built the second temple. The man made plaza that tourists can visit today was built around the time of Christ, when Herod, the Roman vassal king of Judea, knocked down and rebuilt the existing structure. The temple on Mount Moriah had become too small to hold all the pilgrims and worshippers, so Herod extended the sacred precinct around the structure, building a 34-acre stone platform so that worshippers could congregate around the new temple. It was only decades later in 64 AD that the works were concluded. The unemployment that resulted from the end of construction lay the ground for the revolt against Rome that began in 66 AD. In 70 AD, the revolt was crushed by Titus and the temple destroyed. The failed revolt marks the start of the 2,000-year exile of the Jewish people referred to in Israel's national anthem. Rabbis taught generations of Jews that they were strangers in foreign lands, that only the long-awaited Messiah could lead them back to their own country, and that only he could undo Titus's crime and rebuild the temple. So the temple has always been central to Jews' explanation of how they can be the chosen people and yet live under the rule of other at times hostile faiths. But a messianic narrative is a double-edged sword. On the one hand it's a persuasive explanation for why people should get on with their lives and leave redemption to future generations. The side effect is that activists are all the more zealous when they start believing that tomorrow has actually come. In any case, at the place where the temple is thought to have stood, there is now a spectacular golden-domed octagonal mosque adorned with blue mosaic. It is called the Dome of the Rock because underneath the main structure, a crag protrudes from the plaza. This rocky outcrop is thought to be the protruding peak of Mount Moriah. Muslims believe the mosque marks the spot where Muhammad, carried from Arabia by a magical steed, ascended to heaven and led all the prophets of Israel, such as Abraham, Moses and Jesus, in prayer. Muhammad's ascension, the Mi'raj, is recounted in the Qur'an. However, the Qur'an only says that God took Muhammad from the sacred mosque to the most distant mosque, the word for most distant being Al-Aqsa. As some Israelis like to point out, Jerusalem is not mentioned once in the Quran, and Muhammad, aside from this miraculous journey, never went near Jerusalem. Caliph Omar conquered the city in 638 AD, but it was a later caliph, Abdul Malik, who built the Dome of the Rock in 691. It is thought by some historians and by some polemicists that since Abdul Malik did not control Mecca, Islam's holiest city, he wished to establish Jerusalem as a rival holy place for Muslims and so built the mosque in order to strengthen the idea that Muhammad's ascension was from the Temple Mount. In any case, the dome became a place of prayer and pilgrimage for Muslims. Meanwhile, rabbinical law forbade Jews from entering the site until the Messiah comes to rebuild the third temple. Instead, Jewish prayer was directed to the Western Western Wall, the only part of the old temple complex still standing. Now, to grasp the importance for the Israeli public of Israel's capture of the old city and the Temple Mount in the Six-Day War of 1967, two points must be borne in mind. First, Jordan, after annexing East Jerusalem in 1948, barred any Jew from entering the old city. While Zionism saw itself as a gathering in of the Jewish diaspora, the creation of the state was tainted with bitterness and exile, and an even greater estrangement from Judaism's holiest site. It was hard to see the state as heralding the messianic age when its creation meant that Jews were cut off from their holy city. Second, in the period preceding the war, territory and national identity had disappeared from the national conversation. Israelis were facing their first ever economic recession, and were more concerned with debating their deficit than with redeeming the biblical heartland. The conquests of 1967 awoke Israel from a mood of door realism. So, as Israeli paratroopers rushed to secure the old city of Jerusalem in the Temple Mount, Before a ceasefire was declared, General Shlomo Goran, chief rabbi of the army, followed close behind, blowing on a ram's horn. After leading soldiers in prayer, the rabbi conferred with chief Chief of staff Uzi and urged him to dynamite the Dome of the Rock, the mosque sitting on top of the Holy of Holies. Now is our chance to destroy this abomination, he insisted. Nakhis had to threaten the rabbi with imprisonment before he would give way. Nonetheless, the Israelis did want to designate an area for Jewish prayer. The area in front of the Wailing Wall had always been rather pokey, since the ancient houses of the Moroccan quarter were huddled up against it. That very evening, volunteers, mainly boys and old men, since all the young men were at the front, destroyed the Moroccan houses, giving residents minutes to gather their belongings. The same day, Defence Minister Moshe Dayan, fluent in Arabic, came to an understanding with the Muslim religious authorities in an impromptu meeting held cross-legged on a carpet in the Dome of the Rock. Jewish worship would be restricted to the Wailing Wall. The Temple Mount would remain under the control of the Muslim religious trust called the Waqf. Non-Muslim tourists would be allowed to visit the site, but not pray there, and only in the mid-morning, from Sundays to Thursdays. However controversial the destruction of the Moroccan quarter, it led to a stable arrangement for sharing the site. Most importantly, the state was able to draw on the authority of Jewish orthodoxy. Israel's two chief rabbis issued edicts encouragement of the government, reaffirming the traditional prohibition on Jews entering the holy precinct. Later that June, when hundreds of thousands of Jews converged on the newly conquered holy city to pray on Shavuot, the Feast of Tabernacles, they congregated not on the mount, but on the new plaza that had been cleared in front of the western wall. However, the Temple Mount was no longer tantalizingly out of reach, a few yards to the other side of a ceasefire line. There was no longer that psychological barrier to thinking of the state of Israel as heralding the messianic era of redemption. Naomi Shemel's Jerusalem of Gold. She writes, We have returned to the water cisterns, to the market and the square. A ram's horn calls out on the Temple Mount. Of course, that was the verse she added in 1967. The original 1966 version was, The market square is empty. No one visits the Temple Mount. With the change of perspective brought about by the 1967 war, voices in Israeli civil society started to question the ban on Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount. This sentiment is articulated most strikingly by the four movements that I want to talk about now. Chaivek Ayam, the Temple Mount Faithful, the Temple Mount Institute, and the movement to establish the Temple. To see where these movements are coming from, we need to situate them with respect to two quite distinct religious communities on the one hand, the ultra-Orthodox community, and on the other, the religious Zionist community. First, the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi Jews, who tend to dress in all black and wear hats, kept to the traditional rabbinical view that Jews may not step foot on the Temple Mount, and generally see the State of Israel as a secular entity for managing worldly affairs. In contrast, religious Zionists generally wear a knitted skull cap, often with jeans and a shirt, and probably a tzitzit tucked discreetly into their trousers, are regarded as heretical by Heredes, and believe that the state of Israel is a vehicle for divine redemption. The religious Zionist credo was essentially formulated by the philosopher Rabbi Abraham Cook in the early part of the 20th century. From 1967, his son, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook, became the spiritual leader of the settler movement, teaching that it was a divine commandment to settle the newly conquered territories in keeping with the state's redemptive mission. However, Cook, like other religious Zionist leaders, maintained that it was still forbidden to step foot on the Temple Mount, let alone rebuild the Temple. The Messiah himself would do that. The first movement I want to talk about, Chayvekayam, is led by Yehuda Etzion, a disciple of the Rav Cook. Despite Cook's views, in 1982, Etzion led a highly credible conspiracy to storm the Temple Mount and dynamite the Dome of the Rock, with a view to establishing the Third Temple. His group's ideology was a fusion of religious Zionism with the nationalism of Israel's secular far-right. Etzion's other mentor was Shabbatai Ben Dov, a veteran of the ultra-nationalist Lehi militia, also known as the Sterngang. Gang. Shabbatai Ben Dov was on the religious, even theocratic side of the Sterngang, Gang, but the temple was a central symbol of Jewish strength even for Lehi's more secular leaders, like Yitzhak Shemir, who became Prime Minister of Israel in 1983. Shamir had approved the Stern Gang's 18-point charter, which called for, I quote, building the temple as symbol of the era of the Third Kingdom. In contrast to the Rav Kook, Ben Dov saw the secular state of Israel, with its timid leaders, as devoid of redemptive power. This part could only be played by a vanguard of settler activists. This message rang particularly true in the settler movement in 1982, The Begin government intended to hand back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt that April. How could the state have a divine purpose if it was giving away the land that God had given it? The dynamite plot aimed to salvage the state's messianic mission by scuppering the withdrawal and allowing the rebuilding of the Third Temple. What Rabbi Garin had failed to do through the army would be done by the settler vanguard. When the plan to blow up the dome ran into obstacles, the plotters turned instead to terrorism. They were arrested by Israeli security services for plotting to blow up Arab school buses. Yehuda Edzion, who served a short prison sentence, continues to pursue his lobbying and fundraising activities and is currently working on a lengthy biography of his mentor, Shabatai Ben-Dov. The second group, the Temple Mount Faithful led by Gershon Salomon, is also inspired by Israel's secular far right. Salomon's main activity is to visit the mount and to address resounding declarations to the government, such as, I quote, The God and people of Israel demand you to build the temple of God now. There is no need to wait for the coming of the Messiah Ben David, as he will come only when the Arab Islamic enemy that desecrates God's holy hill is removed and the temple is rebuilt. Despite the references to God, the declaration betrays Salomon's contempt for traditional Judaism. Inspired by Israel's secular far right, Salomon is dismissive of the strict prerequisites for building the temple stipulated by rabbinical law. Bareheaded and beardless, he wishes simply to ignore them and get on with building the temple to mark the rebirth of the Jewish people as a glorious nation. For this reason, our third organization, the Temple Institute, headed by Rabbi Israel Arieli has a far stronger appeal for pious Israelis, especially in religious Zionist circles. Rather than dismissing the requirements that have to be met under Jewish law before the temple can be built, the Institute shows how they can all be met, if necessary, using cutting-edge technology. For example, according to rabbis, the temple may not be built until a red heifer is born in the Holy Land. Some years ago I was taken around the Temple Institute Museum by a young but intense lady who explained that all Jews are considered to have had contact with the dead since the destruction of the second temple. That is why it's forbidden to pray on the mount. In the temple era a Jew who had come into contact with the dead could be cleansed of his impurity using the ashes of a red heifer as ordained in the book of Numbers. When another red heifer is born in the Holy Land Jewish priests, purified with its ashes, can once again set foot on the holy precinct. My guide informs me that the Templar Institute has finally succeeded in breeding light blue snails that meet the scriptural requirements to colour the sacerdotal cloth. I am shown an elaborate priestly robe that has been dyed blue with the precious tincture. But the heifer is more tricky since it must be perfectly red The Institute has come quite close to a pure red cow, but so far there have always been splotches of other colours. Historians have argued that the notion of a messianic age was conceived precisely to discourage Jews from returning to Israel and rebuilding the temple. rabbis set out a series of impossible conditions that had to be met before the Messiah would come and the return would be possible. In other words, the conditions with all the smells and bells were designed to be impossible. Be that as it may, like many religious literalists, the Temple Institute is applying a lot of modern science, and in particular biotech, to comply with the almost impossible letter of the law. The other function of the Temple Institute and its museum is to produce a lot of fun artifacts and well-illustrated books that generate interest in the issue of the temple, but all the arts and crafts and smells and bells sit strangely with a certain air of secrecy. For example, I asked my guide if I could photograph the blue priestly robe and she became quite hostile. But perhaps this is a hangover of the dark past of the Institute's founder, Rabbi Ariely, who was a leader of Rabbi Kahane's extremist Kakh party, which incidentally was also active on temple issues and that brought the party into uh, a certain amount of conflict with the forces of law and order. And that brings us to the movement to establish the temple. While the Temple Institute appeals primarily to religious Zionists, this movement, founded by the uh, el Bohem dynasty of uh, rabbis belonging to the Belza Hasidic sect, reaches out to the ultra-Orthodox Haredi community. Rather than trying to fulfil all the impossible conditions artificially, the Alboims have used their position as mainstream Orthodox rabbis to argue that they are not necessary. In this endeavour, they have won some support from one of America's leading Litvak rabbis, Rabbi Moshe Tendler, Yosef al Bohem also argues that Jews are commanded to maintain a presence on the Temple Mount. His weekly visits can be seen on YouTube. He is heckled by mainstream Haredis, but over a thousand people attend his movement's conventions. Beyond these organized movements, there are as many variants as there are Israeli activists who rely on the cult of the Temple to make sense of their own lives and of their society. I stopped finding it incomprehensible that anyone would want to risk tampering with such a sensitive site after a young religious Zionist told me in a good-humoured Australian accent that destroying the mosque was actually a very minor concern. The spiritual energy of the new temple might solve all our energy and climate change problems, then even the Arabs would understand why it had to be done. Well, let's look now at where this site known as Al-Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary to Muslims, fits into Palestinian nationalism. An example from the British Mandate period is instructive. At the time, Arab control of the mount itself was uncontested, but there was conflict over the Western Wall. The Western Wall riots of 1929 were the first major round of bloodletting between Zionists and Palestinians, resulting in over a hundred deaths on each side. As tensions grew over the 1920s, Jewish worship at the wall was a symbol of the overlapping historical ties to the land that legitimated the Zionist presence. For the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajj al-Amin al-Husseini, asserting exclusive ownership of Jerusalem's most sacred space was a way of affirming sole Arab ownership of the land, The Mufti gave inflammatory sermons referring to the folk belief that the wall was where Muhammad had tethered the Burak, the magical steed that had carried him from Mecca. So the wall should therefore be a Muslim and not a Jewish holy place. While Jewish prayer at the wall was too, too well established to be questioned, Husseini challenged the right of Jews to bring screens to separate men and women, claiming that this constituted unauthorized construction activity. From this act of brinkmanship, the dispute escalated into riots and bloodshed. Following the creation of the State of Israel, the Temple Mount was in Arab hands. Because it had not been lost, it was not an object of longing. So for the founders of Fatah and the PLO, the, the harem was not a symbol of their irredentist claims. But the generation that launched the first Intifada in the late 1980s had only ever known Israeli control of the site. As in the 1920s, the sacred precinct embodied an overlapping tie to the land, but now the front line was on the mount itself, not the western wall. In 1990, Gershon Salomon's Temple Mount Faithful announced plans to lay the cornerstone of the new temple. This gesture sparked the worst round of violence of the First Intifada, and the police reaction to the riots led to 22 Palestinian deaths. There is a similar sort of brinkmanship whenever archaeological exploration is proposed, sometimes leading to demonstrations not just in Jerusalem but across the Muslim world. The objection is usually that excavation will damage the mosque. But Palestinians perceive a further threat in attempts to dig up evidence of the mount's Jewish history, namely that it will strengthen the Israelis' prior claim to the mount at the expense of their own. Most strikingly, archaeologists are prevented from studying the craggy rock underneath the dome, thought to be Mount Moriah, and are obliged to draw conclusions from photographs dating from the Ottoman period. This pattern of one-upmanship has had grave political consequences. In 1996, the new Netanyahu government opened a new entrance to a tunnel that led from the Western Wall Plaza to the Muslim Quarter of the Old City. False rumours circulated that a new tunnel was being dug that would threaten the foundations of the mosque. In fact, there was no new tunnel, only a new entrance to an existing structure But Arafat and other PA officials repeated these allegations leading to riots and an existential crisis for the peace process when gunfire was exchanged between PA police and the Israeli army. Although the tunnel project was in itself innocuous, it was part of a strategy of outreach to the more confrontational elements in the settler community. In 1995, Netanyahu had written a letter to Yehuda Etzion, mastermind of the 1982 dynamite plot, promising to establish Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount if he was elected. He could not keep that promise, so the tunnels were a sort of substitute gesture of ownership. Netanyahu's successor, Ehud Barak, went into negotiations with the Palestinians, determined not to alienate the hard right, as the previous Labour Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin had done. This was why, during the Camp David negotiations of July 2000, Barak insisted that in any peace deal, Israel have sole sovereignty over the whole temple area and that a space on the mount be set aside for Jewish prayer, even though only fringe activists in Israel call for Jewish prayer on the mount. The purpose, given the climate of the 1990s, was to engage in brinkmanship and to take a stand on the priority of Israel's tie to the temple. Arafat's response was to deny that Solomon's temple had been on the mount, claiming that it had in fact been in Nablus. The sacred precinct was therefore of purely Muslim significance. It was in this context that Ariel Sharon led a contingent of a thousand Israeli police to tour the Temple Mount on the 28th of September 2000, with Barak's approval. Sharon's show of force was the ultimate affirmation of Jewish ownership. Palestinian riots followed, and then a lethal crackdown by Israeli police, leading to what we now know as the Second Intifada. There was similar posturing in the run-up to the Annapolis Conference of November 2007. The Mughrabi Bridge, the main entrance to the mount for non-Muslim tourists, had collapsed in 2004. In 2007, work began on rebuilding the bridge. Palestinian protests began when archaeologists were called in to dig around the foundations of the new site to ensure that no antiquities were harmed. It transpired that rightists in Olmert's cabinet opposed to the negotiations, had authorised the digging without consulting the PM in order to vaunt their hardline credentials. Palestinian leaders responded by fanning implausible rumours that the digging was, was a threat to the foundations of the mosque. Now that there are calls for the resumption of talks, Jerusalem has already proven to be the focus of posturing by both sides, most recently over the issue of a settlement expansion timed in order to affirm exclusive Israeli ownership. If future negotiations go anywhere, the Temple Mount is likely to remain a sticking point, and should they degenerate, a flashpoint for posturing and violence. For more information about the Israeli Temple movements, I recommend Moti Mbari's book, Jewish Fundamentalism and the Temple Mount. For an analysis of the movements, in the broader context of Jewish, Christian, and Muslim Messianism, I recommend The End of Days by Gershom Gorenberg. Join me in two weeks to look back at the Camp David summit of July 2000, ten years on almost to the day. Thanks for listening.